At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Imam Tom. Welcome back, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Um, As you will know, Tom has kindly agreed to discuss the books that have made a significant difference to him intellectually. And today, Tom continues his reflections on the fascinating book by Professor Talal Assad entitled Formations of the Secular Christianity, Islam, Modernity. So um, Imam Tom spoke of this considerably last week, and I I know there's much more to discuss from this uh, incredible book. So over to you, Tom. Hey, after Bismillah, um, Just to give everybody again a, a brief overview of the structure of the book as a whole, right? So he splits it into thirds. Uh, last time, we only scratched the surface. That was the tip of the iceberg, really, kind of a preview of the introduction. The, the first third of the book concerns the secular, right? As this kind of phenomenon, this category that exists. Uh, the second third of the book involves the movement, the political project or the political goal of secularism, right? So obviously any political project, it would presuppose something to advocate for. So the first third is what is that thing that's being advocated for? And the second third is the actual political project of advocating for that thing. And then third, the final third of the book is historically, how did that play out uh, in a particular case study? And he titles that third secularism. 
So I'm going to apologize to the viewers up front because this third is the driest third of the book, and it's the most theoretical and the most abstract because for most observers and thinkers, they don't really pay attention to how these sorts of things uh, work and shift and change until the political happens, right? Now, all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden we're getting, we see it right now, we're having all these sorts of gender affirming surgery is becoming law. And now people are getting fired for not using the right pronouns. And now we start to care, right? Um, though, though this thing has been in the movement for quite some time when it came to kind of the philosophical shifts that were occurring that could make that political project possible in the first place. Right. Right. So we're going to deal with today that first third that deals with what is the secular? What is the thing that made it possible to have a political movement or a political goal that was secularism? Mm. Um, and as Essed says in the introduction, um, secularism as something that we're constituted by, as something that we kind of are swimming inside of it, it's hard to really deal with it head on. It's hard to look at it in the face because it shapes so much of how we're already thinking through the world. Yeah. Um, and so he has this phrase where he says that it's best pursued through the shadows. And so he kind of is going to um, focus on maybe three sorts of categories or oppositions or phenomenons uh, in order to kind of reveal things about how the secular as a category has sort of formed and that, that thus the, the title of the book formations of the secular. Right. So one of those, um, you know, the first one that he's going to deal with, he's going to deal with a myth, the concept of myth. Uh, and the second that he's going to deal with in this part of the book is um, has to do with um, pain and agency. And then the final thing that he's going to deal with uh, has to do with cruelty and torture. Mm. And so by, he, you know, uh, Essed has this concept that's very derived from Foucault of genealogy, right? So he's going to trace understandings and associations and even terms and definitions of these sorts of phenomenons throughout history to show us where we've come from and where we're going to, yeah. to kind of make sense of the current world that we live in. Um, and he frames all of this and he kind of, this is a reiteration of something he said in the in the introduction that Coming back to the idea of the secular, you know, how is the secular, when people think of it, what's the first thing that comes to their mind? You know, most people, they think of the kind of, we would say the triumphalist definition or understanding of what the secular is. Everybody was just killing each other, bloodshed and intolerance when we lived in the Christian feudal past. And then the secular came and saved everybody. Everybody was kind of, um, you know, uh, now we can live in peace. And as I was told in the comment section, the very fact that we are able to have different opinions uh, is thanks be to King <laughs> Secular, right? Which is hilarious, but we'll get there. I understand. We only covered the intro. Um, so uh, that's the triumphalist understanding of what is the secular. Uh, but you have another understanding of what the secular is. So some people are suspicious of that account. And they would say, no, actually, what it really is, is this is the new religion. Okay, so the, um, the secular just literally took over from where Christianity or religion left off. And we just changed the names. Uh, God is now the nation or whatever. And, you know, et cetera, the rituals are now the pledge of allegiance or God save the queen or 
whatever it is. We have blasphemy laws. They're not called blasphemy laws now, but they function the same way in demonizing, ostracizing, and punishing those who transgress against the divinity, divinity being something else now. (laughs) Yes. And there's definitely, as I would say, there's definitely a grain of truth in that. However, he says it's not that simple. It's not, it's neither, the secular is neither a clean break from the violent religious past that preceded it, nor is it a clean continuity that's really just the same thing repackaged. That thinking about it in either of those two extremes kind of deprives us of getting into the nitty gritty of seeing how the different formations change and how our associations and feelings and sensibilities uh, have changed along with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So he says that, you know, to resist the idea that secular even has a singular history, a lot of times we really want a, a, a very neat story, right? The secular was invented by such and such a Christian friar in the year so-and-so, and, you know, and then he spread it from here to there. Uh, we even see, you know, uh, this sort of thinking when we see uh, Muslim polemics against Christianity, there's there's no doubt that Paul was, you know, sort of a renegade, but sometimes a lot of uh, Muslim polemicists overemphasize Paul because it's a, a clean story. They want to make it seem like Paul was like the only guy that just completely just wrecked the whole thing. And the reality is that it's a little more complicated than that. So we have something. Oh, yeah. No, so we have. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm just personally, okay. really, it's good to hear a, a Muslim. So it sounds very patronizing. I don't mean to be patronizing. It's just very good to hear uh, a, a, a thinking Muslim actually say that because very often, uh, as, as you say, Paul gets blamed for just inventing the whole religion. And and right. that is, that's, that's not a view that scholars hold. Yes, he was a very key player, but there were others beside him and precursors to him. He he inherited some of these attitudes, mm-hmm. although he was a great innovator himself. So it's more complicated, mm-hmm. that's all. Yes, exactly. And and that's, I think, exactly what you kind of um, insinuated there. We kind of look silly. Um, it's not, it doesn't stand up to rigor to oversimplify things like this. Um, and so it's important to get into the details. We don't need to worry about sacrifice, sacrificing the, um, the thrust or the power of our uh, rhetoric just for being historically accurate in this case, at least. Um, so he says that, yes, it's, there's, there's neither a singular a historical origin to the concept of the secular, nor is 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 it even a stable identity, which is something that a lot of people get hung up on because they want to say, well, wait a second. Well, um, a couple hundred years ago, you know, the church came up with the secular. The, the Christian church was actually the one that instituted something of a secularism in order to save the religion from political power. And so it's really this sort of, right? It's like, well, yes, that is a truth, but that truth does not totalize and completely account for all of what the secular is and means and how it functions today, right? So it's not necessarily a stable historical category where you could say that 1600 uh, Vatican secular is the same thing as the secular that we have today. You were going to say? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, mean, in France at the moment, I was reading a book about laicite, uh, as it's called here in France, this notion of French secularism. And it's a and in French in the French body politic is a highly contested notion. There is no single stable concept that is accepted universally by all. What is secularism? It is actually uh, contested and argued about, and it has been since certainly the beginning of the twentieth century when there was a radical shift in the relations between church and state. So that, um, I'm just in a sense in reinforcing what you're saying that this is a shifting um, paradigm. But nevertheless, I think there is 
there is a, a, what one can speak of in a very kind of tentative way. There is a, 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 a secularism in France, but yes. the extent of it and how it intrudes into the churches mm-hmm. and whether or not they should be supported by the state, which they are in France, bizarrely, the, the state actually financially supports the, the, the infrastructure of the church. You know, all this is contested. And so the, it, it's not a stable, simple concept, even in the home of secularism in France. Yes. Yes, and that's very significant because it, we're not trying to obfuscate the issue and we're not trying to say, well, oh, this is complicated and it's too complicated to understand and everybody just you know, debates as to what the secular or secularism is anyway. No, there is a general thrust and there are certain commonalities that even all sort of, you know, we could say like the frame of debate right, within which certain things about secular, the secular or secularism uh, take place, have certain common assumptions to them or common sensibilities to them. So we're not saying that. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy and delicious breads, buns and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. We can't say anything, but it's important to note the particularities so that we can know where to shift it and how to maneuver it. Because if there's something that's contested within the expression of secularism, either in France or in the UK or in uh, the United States, then even within the history of secularism or the category of the secular, there might be room to maneuver, right? You might be, you know, even in the United States, we're adjudicating this right now. We had the recent Supreme Court case where there was a, 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 a whatever a high school teacher who made a prayer, a Christian prayer at midfield, either before or after a game, and now he's as you know the question is: is he re- representing a state institution because he is? This is a public school, even though he was committing a personal act. And so this is something that you know, depending on what side or what flavor of secularism you might um, you might endorse, you can make an argument for either way. Right. Some people in, in this case, I think the, the guy won, didn't he? The, the guy who was doing the prayer. Yes, he did. But what's 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 uh, I want to choose my word carefully here. What is alarming is that we have we don't uh, it's maybe it's not alarming is the, the right word. What's interesting to note is that we do not have a singular response as a Muslim community to the outcome of that case. We have the advocacy groups such as CARE and MPAC and these other sort of, I believe MPAC, um, and other sort of, um, let's say, more activist inspired and more kind of liberal, um, you know, organizations that claim to represent Muslims that are lambasting that decision as something that is potentially harmful for Muslims, where then you have, yeah, oh yeah. And then you have other people within the community, imams and other, you know, sort of scholars or du'at or etc., that are praising it as something that is helpful to the Muslims. So this is something that's contested. And even within the language of secularism and the secular, you could make a case for either, mm. putting aside for a second, putting aside for a second, like, you know, the, our particular concerns as Muslims and, and Islam. But the, the idea of the freedom, like the, um, the the not having an established state religion versus the freedom from any sort of religious expression, right? Those are two different things. So that's all of this is to say that it's worth to note the particularities of this thing. It's worth to get into the nitty gritty, especially for people who are able to conceptually, not because we want to be relativists and say, well, it's all just complicated and you can't do anything, but to understand the terrain to be able to move. Okay. Uh, you I, might I, find I, yourself I, in an argument. Yes, go ahead. 
No, I was, was going to say, uh, the, uh, talking about the particulars, as one of the interesting things when I first went to the United States, uh, as obviously as an Englishman, where in England or the UK, the the head of state, Her Majesty the Queen, Queen the Second, Elizabeth the Second, um, is not only a Christian, but she's the head of the church. Yes. So our head of state is explicitly uh, a head of the church. So we're not technically a secular society. And yet, compared to America, which is officially a, a republic, a secular society, is much more, America is much more religious. I mean, in fact, religion is, is uber-charged in many parts of the United States as an outsider coming in and looking at it. That's how it appears. Not everywhere, of course, but in many states, it's very, very prominent. And yet it's officially a secular society. Right. So, so, you know, the, the, the official doctrine and the reality can be very at odds with each other. Uh, and so one has to take all the nuances into account and not just what it says in the Constitution of the United States, for example. That won't necessarily tell yeah. you what's going on on the ground in the South, for example. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, those are three. We could say that you know, UK and the and actually Essa does point to this. Uh, I believe he points it out in either the conclusion or in the intro that the United States and the UK and France are actually three very tellingly different expressions of secularism, right? Because um, we don't have the same sort of state support for an official church, yet our population is much more religious than the UK. Yeah. UK is much less religious as a population, yet the government is much more tied to an official church. And yeah. France obviously has taken um, very aggressive stances against religion, but I believe also still has some sort of ties to an official. Uh, well, no, but, no, but it does. The, the official holidays in France just, just happen to mirror those of the official Catholic calendar when they have holidays. So, you know, the, the, the assumption of Mary, believe it or not, right. is, is actually a, a, a holiday or, or an important holy day in the Catholic Church. Mm. And just coincidentally, the secular French state has that day off as a public holiday. And, and the, as I said, I said before, believe it or not, the, the French state uh, finances uh, and, and maintains the infrastructure of the Catholic Church in this yes. country. It pays for it out of taxation. Right. That's how secular France is. And it, on the other hand, it's militantly atheist and it will suppress and does suppress any dissent, particularly, particularly from Muslims. Oh, of course. Right. So there's so there's two levels to it. And I think that's one of the takeaways before we get into the really, really dry material of maybe this uh, third of the book. That's, I think, the takeaway that people should consider um, that, OK, it's not OK. There might be times and situations where this is mere hypocrisy. Right. You're saying that you're secular, but really you're not. Or, or it's not hypocrisy. This is merely the incoherence of the secular as a category and the messiness of expressing secularism in an actual uh, on the ground sort of situation. Or, that they're out of control as well. I mean, the state is very, very convenient for the state, but it pays for these institutions of the church because, mm -hmm. of yes. course, it has some control, it has some leverage yes. over them because it's yes. actually propping this, this institution yes. up. So, hey, you know, the, the church owes a bit back to the state to perhaps keep quiet mm -hmm. and not speak mm -hmm. out and all these things. Fantastic. And that's a that's a feather in the cap of Esed because I you have lots of people who, you know, see the the title of, of this particular series and they say, oh, a couple Muslim guys uh, in the secular West who are talking about how bad secularism is. Why don't you go to some sort of non-secular country, which betrays a very poor understanding of what secularism secularism is, because even these quote unquote, religious states in the, that they're imagining in the Middle East, yeah. they are also secular states in that they have the same relations to, to their state. Like Saudi Arabia controls the universities and the government and, you know, the, the official line and what are the taught in the schools and the doctrine and things like this. Like, is this very much different from France's 
Um, you know, no, honestly, it's not right. So people have this imagine imagination that secularism is one thing when in reality, we're trying to uh, open their minds a little bit and show them that the secular state is ubiquitous, right? And secularism is actually ubiquitous. And I'm not aware of any sort of space in the world right now that isn't dominated by at least some form of secularism, though it has multiple expressions and multiple possibilities. It's not just one thing. Um, so that's all kind of just a little, <laughs> a little segue, a little preface, if you will. Um, as far as the category, as it gets into the category of the secular, he does define it. He's saying this thing is not just, um, uh, we can't not define it. There is a possible thing that we can say about it. He says that the secular is a concept that brings together certain behaviors, sensibilities, and knowledges of modern life. So that's what we're looking at and what we're concerned with, behaviors, sensibilities, and knowledges. Um, where can we most easily access these behaviors, sensibilities, and knowledges of modern life in the oppositions that seem apparent to us? Okay, so modern life, or at least the secular modern life, produces for us, through its concepts, through its formations, certain things that seem opposites just naturally to us. Nobody told us that these things are opposites, but yet we believe them to be so. So for example, we have belief versus knowledge. Mm. Okay. Um, and this is something that we've seen play out over and over again with, uh, with COVID, right? It's like, well, you have your beliefs and that is against science or that's against fact, or you can keep your beliefs at home. Like what we're concerned with is the actual truth, right? So the whole construction in which someone could possibly think that belief is opposite is constructed opposite of knowledge in the first place. That's something that's particularly modern. It's not universal. It doesn't, that hasn't existed forever. It's got a time limit. It's got a shelf life. So this is something that uh, is indicative of the secular time in which we live. Another opposition, reason and imagination. Um, history versus fiction. This is a very important one we're going to circle back to at the end, right? People like to call Herodotus the father of history, which is the worst anachronism in the world because Herodotus, his quote unquote histories, are not recognizable as anything that we would think history is, right? So, and we'll we'll get there. I mean, I don't want to tip the cards too much, but uh, I, I think I, I think it's Herodotus or Thucydides. I forget which one of one of those two. You know, credited with being you know the, the fathers of, of, of history. You actually uh, admitted when they were recounting you know one, one of the endless battles. You know what the general said on the eve of war. And you actually right. said, look, you you have to invent the speeches because you have to. Yes. That you invent the kind of thing that they would have said on that occasion to their troops, right? And, and this this became standard historiographical practice. And and historians uh, now believe, I think, with very good reason, that Luke, for example, the author of the Acts mm. of the Apostles, this mm. is the history of the early church we find in the New Testament, also invented the speeches that were put on the lips of Peter and Paul mm. and the other disciples. In other words, they didn't actually say to this stuff, but Luke thought. Well, that's the sort of thing Peter would have said to the crowds just after Pentecost in AD 33. And he puts those words. And one of the reasons they think this, if you look at all the speeches, they, they all have the same kind of idiomatic structure, the same kind of vocabulary. They sound like the kind of a standard thing that Luke is saying that they said that, right. they're, that they're not personalized. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, he was far from in time and place from those events anyway. But what mm -hmm. he wasn't being a fraud. He was practicing very standard yes. Hellenistic historiography as it's called yes and that is a million miles we did that today your career would be destroyed and you'd be accused of being a fraud and uh, everything else but that's right. the case but then it yes was. 
So yeah, so we see that that the lines between history and fiction in the pre-modern era are not nearly as fixed or as stark. That this is a very modern and a very recent sort of invention, and we're going to talk about it uh, fairly soon as to the shifts that occurred historically in order for that opposition to even make sense. Um, another one that he goes through is the uh, the opposition of natural versus supernatural, which hits a little bit closer to home when it comes to how we think about the divine or the sacred. And then the final, well, there's final two, sacred as opposed to the profane yeah. is one that he brings up. And then also state law as opposed to uh, personal morality or personal ethics. Yeah. And this is something that Halak writes a lot about. He calls it the distinction uh, and something that is particularly relevant to us today, as we talked about previously, when people are wondering, well, I believe that for example, homosexual relationships are wrong or that homosexual marriage is immoral. Well, does that naturally translate into my wanting to enact legislation uh, in order to uh, bar or not recognize such unions, right? Um, there is, unfortunately, a lot of even du'at in, in North America are kind of parroting this idea that, well, public policy or state law and uh, personal ethics or personal morality are two completely separate spheres. Okay, this is something that is an extremely modern disposition. This this opposition makes no sense in pre-modern life, uh, and I don't believe that it's uh, it makes sense within kind of an quote unquote indigenous Sharia-minded uh, sort of subjectivity. Um, so these sorts of things they they have weight, they have consequences, even though they seem very abstract and theoretical. They have consequences in how what again Esad uses sensibilities. Right, what appears to us or makes sense to us? Yeah. Uh, why? Why would it even make sense to somebody to say, "Well, I'm going to believe what I believe in personally, and I'm not going to try to institute that into law"? Um, that's a very, very modern subjectivity, and I guess we'll deal with it. So that's kind of the 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 overview. So, like we said, he goes into he he wants to focus on three shadows in order to kind of observe how uh, the secular was formed or how it fell into place. Uh, and the first one that he looks at is myth. Uh, and myth has some adjacent sort of uh, concepts that come up, such as the sacred and profane and things like that. But he really focuses mostly on myth. Um, and I'll start with something, you know, as a homeschooling parent myself, any homeschooling parent knows that, uh, in, at least in, the, in North America, if you get a, a catalog of like homeschool courses or homeschool sort of academies or things like this, most of them are run by Christians. The Christians are way ahead of us when it yeah. comes to the practice of homeschooling. And you'll always find something that as a Muslim is very, very curious uh, aesthetically and theologically. You'll find that next to all of the Jesus, 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 Christianity, Christianity, Christianity stuff, you find the Greek myths. You find Zeus and you find Athena and you find, you know, whatever. Now, for a Muslim, I'm thinking this is idolatry. <laughs> what are you doing? Teaching monotheism on one hand and teaching idolatry on the other. Yeah, yeah. The fact that these two things could coexist simultaneously in one homeschooling packet is exactly the, the shift in what a myth meant that's going to, that is this object of inquiry for, for Esed. Okay, because myth didn't always mean what we think it means today. Um, Esed traces the original understanding of myth as something that was more akin to inspiration. Okay, this sort of, um, you know, the mythos was almost like a fusion of the divine and the uh, not divine, 
right? And so mythic speech was true, but also heroic. And you're probably more of an expert in this uh, in this area than, than I am, but I'm going off of Esed and I'm taking him at his word. So he compares uh, mythic speech or the, or the mythos would be sort of like exactly what you said, this, this, the motivating speech that the general would give to his army, right? Remember our forefathers, remember our ancestors, they bled for this land and they did this, whatever. And so it's a particular reenactment of identities and histories, and it's understood to be divinely inspired to, to motivate other people and affect a sort of uh, sort of behavior. Whereas the opposite of mythos was considered the logos. And at least Asad is saying that originally the logos had a completely different meaning from what it took on later, that the logos was actually sort of, um, if we're to use the same example, maybe the cunning speech that was technically true that was used to say, dissuade certain people from a particular course of action. Uh, so if you have somebody on the battlefield who's trying to say, you know what, there's no way we can possibly win. Look at all these guys, they've got us outnumbered. We don't have any you know, uh, rations. We're you know, technically true speech that is coming from a position of dissimulation or trying to kind of um, you know, not rising to the occasion. Um, Esed says that this is the original meaning of mythos and logos that gets changed throughout the, the history of, of uh, Greek culture and Greek philosophy. He says that first with the sophists, um, the first kind of move that happened was the location of speech into purely human as a purely human source or coming from a purely human source. Whereas before that, the mythos was sort of something that came from the divine and inhabited um, the material. Now, with us after the sophists, yep. the, it, the speech was only something that was generated by humans and revolved around humans. Um, so basically, the idea of a myth came to be um, a socially useful lie. Okay, that's Esed's main point. Okay, whereas before it was a higher truth than the logos. But that's actually yeah. already there in Plato, in Plato's uh, great work, The Republic, where he speaks of the noble lies, literally mm. a thing that he speaks of, um, which has certain utility. Uh, and, and in the modern era, some, uh, some thinkers have seen religion, uh, even though they personally are atheists, they've nevertheless supported religion, particularly in Europe, um, mm. in the sense of it being a noble lie to tell the masses who yes. uh, you know, should be encouraged to fear God and do the right thing and not to steal and uh, do, do, do stuff like that, because only religion, they think, can do that, even though they see mm. it as a lie. A yes. myth. Um, Fantastic. So these various kind of so sociological functions in some people's minds. Yes, that's exactly where we're headed, right? And that, and he does also cite Plato. I'm, I'm less familiar with those things. That's, again, more your expertise. But he says that Plato kind of cemented or flipped the what was before him the um, privilege of the poet over the philosopher. After Plato, the philosopher became the arbiter of truth, giving you the real reality, you know, whereas the poet was sort of, you know, this guy who was maybe, again, functionally stirring people up, inspiring them to action. But, you know, with a cocktail of truth and lie and myth and these other sorts of things. So the category shifts, right? Myth comes, goes from being divinely inspired speech that's actually a higher truth, more maybe a, a synthesis of different types of truth to being something that is reduced to a materially useful sort of instrument. Um, that's the first shift that, that Asad identifies as taking place. The second that takes place is actually something indigenous to Christian, Christianity itself and Christian theology. Um, and this is something that that we should not bristle at as Muslims, even though it strikes close to home, because it seems to resemble also our theology. You know, Esed says that the transcendent nature 
of the divine being in Christianity was something that led itself to a further uh, a separation between natural and supernatural. Okay. Now, what distinguishes Christianity from Islam is all of the kind of concepts and conceptual baggage and associations that came to be loaded into these two categories, right? The supernatural on one hand, which represented the divine, and that having a clean break from the natural. So the associations that kind of picked up within or were packed into the category of the natural, the natural was something that was able to be manipulated, something that was material, something that was determinate, something that was homogenous and something that was subject to mechanical laws and rationality. The thing that, that really um, uh, it concerns us here is the rationality part. Whereas the material universe, the natural world, is the domain of rationality and reason, whereas the supernatural is the realm of inspiration, imagination, and sort of fancy, right? And that's kind of the opposition where we start to see now it's going to have effects and consequences for us now, where we eventually get to the point where belief itself is completely constructed as separate from knowledge. And that's right. I think, I think that came about in, in big time in the European Enlightenment, uh, where you had the, uh, uh, the, this sense of the natural realm. It's, it's no longer creation. It's no longer the product or the, uh, the, uh, the creation of God. It's simply the natural order, uh, nature in itself, autonomous, uh, you can uh, had laws that Newton formulated, mathematical laws, and then you have this supernatural, which is like ghosts and, and gods and demons and and stuff. And 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 this 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 duality uh, is really has really infected Christian theology big time the last several hundred years. And people like uh, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, uh, mm-hmm. prominent biblical scholar. Um, has railed against this, trying to deconstruct this and say, look, this is particular enlightenment understanding. We need to get back to the biblical understanding, which is actually more uh, more like Islam in a sense, where you have where, where the it's God who is the primary absolute reality, and the creation only exists because He upholds it and maintains it in existence from moment to moment, and it has no autonomy, no existence separate from God. So th- this is a contested area uh, in theology. Yeah, that's fantastic, too, because, I mean, my hunch is that, you know, if if Christianity were to truly have a reckoning with all the outside influences uh, from Neoplatonism on down to Enlightenment, you know, thought, then there would be nothing left at the end. Um, and they would maybe have to come to Islam. But, very um, cruel, very cruel. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if that's the will of Allah, what can we do about it? But, uh, but yes, exactly. So the next the next step, uh, as I said, identify. So we have ingredient one, if we're making making the secular cake, right? Ingredient one is kind of the shift in, in the idea of mythos and logos within classical Greek yeah. uh, uh, civilization. And then the second are kind of the ingredients that are kind of indigenous to Christian theology. The third would be the enlightenment and how that also in, infected Christian theology and solidified the, this duality and loaded into each side all these sorts of associations and concepts yeah. um, to the point where post-enlightenment now, exactly what you said, How are we relating to myth? What is myth in the post-Enlightenment world? Um, It's something that is purely an instrument, right? It's it's a fictional mode. It's understood to be far away from reality or truth, very far from the origins from which the concept came. Um, The social kind of benefits to it, okay, it can develop uh, the capacity for feeling sympathy, or it can be used to explore human imagination uh, or psychology even. But the, the main takeaway for us is that it's far away from something that would be called truth. And this would have an effect on how people interacted with scripture, right? Basically exactly what you just said, scripture and the religious, because we've now cleaved supernatural and natural, and we've kind of uh, created this duality. Now 
like you just said, what did you say a second ago? Ghosts and demons, right? Well, like, I, I, was, I was trying to trivialize it, but it, the, the supernatural realm, you know, from Ouija boards, demons and, oh. and angels, all the way up to gods and so on. But it, it's this kind of spooky realm, which is not the yes. realm of this world. Uh, and, and and that kind of uh, um, di- dichotomy is profoundly unbiblical. It's certainly not Islamic and, and very <laughs> modern. By modern, I mean Western European slash American. Yeah. Oh, it's very, no, it's very telling and it's very perfect because that is what you said in trivializing it. That's something that would immediately make sense. That would be something that to most people, I think most Western, you know, moderns would have that sensibility that the demons and the uh, Ouija board and all of that belong in the same sort of category. Whereas a pre-modern understanding of those things would never put those things together in the first place. One of them would be uh, Satan worship or or devil worship or something or idolatry or, or, you know, uh, infidelity uh, in the sense of the infidel. Um, And the other would be the truth. Right. And so that's what we're trying to get at. We're trying to get at the, the shifts in concepts, the shifts in oppositions that made the secular possible. And this is one of them. Um, so when we get to this point, the post enlightenment, we're talking about um, we're talking about how now scripture is read. Okay, scripture is uh, this is where uh, world religions become possible. Right, talking about religions as well, the world religions. We can teach Islam next to Hellenistic mythology yes. next to Hinduism. Right, there is no truth. This is all just that category of yes, the, the spooky. Yeah, they're all part of the natural natural world. So we can look at the Bible or the Quran as literature, just like any yeah. other literature. So yes. you, you'll have the ancient myths, you'll have the Quran, you'll have the, the Vedas, you'll have the, the, the Jewish Bible, the New Testament, uh, uh, and then you'll have the works of Shakespeare, and then you'll have, you know, and they're all in the same level. They're all literature. This is this new secular category, of course. Um, yes. And so you, you, you bleed out any sense of transcendence in the name of this new secular category. And so this is this autonomous realm of nature, uh, just taking over everything. And of course, I don't need to point out how uh, toxic and how false that is as well to the realities of the transcendent, because it's no longer theocentric. It's no longer centered yes. on the mind. It's, it's dunya centric, but right. in, an, in an absolute way uh, that, that admits of no other uh, categories. And we would just hope that even our, our non-Muslim listeners would, if they're not ready to accept it as toxic, uh, at least just realize that it's particular and it's not a given. Yes. Right. Because a lot of people are operating off of the assumption that, well, this is just obviously the way it is. And what we're trying to show people is that what you think is obvious is actually something that's very particular, very recent and something that has historical and ideological forces behind it. It's not just like the, the God given truth, pun intended. Right. Um, so uh, so this is where we get to. And in addition to literature. Right. So we have kind of a couple things happen when we took myth and we took the truth out of myth. So we put we put um, scripture with with myth and with literature and with fiction, and so we created a vacuum when it came to the genres that are available to tell real truth, the real story, and that's the rise of secular history. That is the shift that that makes it possible for the modern secular definition of history to even exist in the first place, which is very different than the history of Herodotus or Thucydides or any of these guys who understood that the purpose of history to them was moral action. It was not technical accuracy. It was not like a hundred, just the facts. No, the point was to tell a story that's going to create a moral ethical response out of the reader that is based in some sort of truthful thing that happened, but it's not the point, which is, um, which is what we get into when a lot of people kind of, uh, some people come to the Quran 
with a sensibility, a very modern sensibility that it should have almost act like a history book where it should also, well, I don't understand. We were talking about this character and then he's gone. And then now we're on to a different story. Uh, they're coming in with the sensibility and assumptions that the Quran should be like a secular history book. Whereas, or like the Bible, actually. People often expect it to be like the Bible. We're beginning with Genesis, you know, a whole bunch of history and whatever with Book of Revelation. Sure. They expect a, a beginning, middle and end, a, a, a chronology, a trajectory that doesn't really yes. exist like that in the Quran. The Quran is a quite unique book in that. Yes. And this is actually one of the, the proofs that, that um, the Quran is of divine authorship and that the, the Bible is not. Because if you're going to make sense of what is the purpose of this text from the structure of this text, it's clear that this, the purpose of this text is moral instruction, right? Whereas if you pick up the Bible, it's not clear at all that the purpose of that book is, is moral instruction. It reads like a history book. In the beginning, there was this and then this and then this and so and so we got so and so we got so and so. What's the point, right? You would walk away from that and you would say that, okay, the author of this book is not necessarily trying to guide me to ethical action, at least not primarily. It's in there. It's in there. But it's often upstaged by historical detail, accuracy, facts, whatever, things that really don't bear on my ability to act ethically and morally. And this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually blames certain populations for, right? When uh, he commands the Jews to sacrifice a cow and they're like, well, what type of cow and whatever this, or they wonder how many years did the people stay in the cave or how, was it four of them with the dog was the fifth. And, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blames the reader or a hypothetical reader for having, for losing the plot and focusing too much on technical accuracy when the whole point of the text is to morally instruct in the first place. Exactly. Um, so this is, yes, so that's where we, we arrive. We arrive at the, the skeptical um, inquiry, the authenticity-based secular history, what really happened, linear time, and then we've put myth in with religion and the fictional mode uh, and everything to the side. And that includes poetry, um, which is, um, again, making a full circle to where we started with the Greeks pre um uh, pre-sophists, whereas poetry was considered the higher truth. Well, now poetry has been relegated down with myth. It's all sort of the same thing. It's a fictional mode. It's useful for a fictional grounding of the real secular truths, the real secular kind of takeaways, but it doesn't require faith. It doesn't require uh, belief. Anybody can have access to it, um, not only the believers, right? And so this is the ultimate secularization um, of this sort of thing. He ends his section on myth by kind of um, running back to a, a modern phenomenon, liberalism and myth, and how does liberalism interact with myth? And the purpose, what he does, why he does this, is that he wants to show us that um, he wants to respond to that subpopulation of people who would imagine that the secular is really just religion masquerading as something new, and all we've done is change the names. So um, he wants to demonstrate how myth is very, even the modern kind of, we could say. Uh, if we're going to make a value judgment, say bastardized, if we're not going to make a value judgment, say the changed, the new definition of myth um, is very much a part of liberalism. But is it, does that mean that it's the same exact type of myth that somebody would assume is part of any other religion? Asad says, no, 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 it's not. And so he talks about, for example, liberalism is based off of two fundamental uh, assumptions, one about the nature of man and one about the nature of society, right? We have assumptions that man uh, men are created equal, that there are such things as inalienable rights, that um, there are such things as uh, property and liberty and autonomy, which are sacred, right? He'll get to that in a second, the idea that it's sacred. 
Okay. So there's another school of thought called sociological realism that would say, wait a second, that's not true. I look at human beings and I look at nature and I don't see that as, as a parent at all. What's, what's natural about liberty? What's natural about autonomy? What's natural about being created equal? If we look at nature, we see inequality. We see injustice. This is what I was going to say. This is a great paradox because in our secular age, we see with Charles Darwin and theories of evolution, well, we are very much products of an evolutionary product. We're part of nature. And, mm-hmm. and, and that means that we, if you look at the natural world around us, you know, we see it on natural history, uh, I mean, uh, nature programs. It's a very unequal world out there. You know, the, the, uh, the, the lion is not equal with the lamb. I mean, one eats the other. The, the, yes. It's where power and strength and, and violence sometimes uh, prevail. And we're the, and, and in this paradigm, we are part of that natural order. So where is equality? Where yeah. can there be equality in that world? There's no equality of value because there is no transcendent value, of course. Mm-hmm. But this is a great myth. And the, the other myth, of course, is of progress, this sort of inexorable mm-hmm. rise. Mm-hmm. You see this in Star Trek, uh, amazingly, where, you, where, where they boldly go and, you know, the Federation, you know, brackets, United States, I suppose, or the, the human race go out there and they try and bring together all these alien species into a happy family. And, you know, this is the great civilizing mission of America, brackets, you know, the world uh, n- now pushed out into the universe um, to, to bring to civilize the natives out there and the Klingons and so on. Anyway, what I'm talking about, but you know, what I mean, it, it's all part of this expression of this kind of myth, which is very powerful in France and in Europe, mm-hmm. particularly uh, where we civilized the Muslims uh, in Algeria and uh, Afghanistan, and we're still doing it today in our foreign policy and our and our uh, the aid we give, which is caveat or tied to particular uh, programs that we're supposed to adopt in schools or in in places, hospitals like abortion and so on, mm-hmm. is is all still connected in that way oh very much so yeah and 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 we'll get into a lot of that in, in more detail in a bit but um the the point for the the time being is that look at what happened as i said said in the intro when we separate the sense of good from uh, a theological source or a divine source yeah. one that um yes it might have some boundaries or some horizons of interpretation but it's still tethered it's tethered at in the end of the day, it's, te- it's tethered to something that is real and something that is fixed. Whereas once you sever that tie and the, the definition of the good is just off floating into space. And, you know, someone had asked me, I was like, well, why can't we identify as humans first? Because that way we'll relate to other people before, before Muslims, Muslims is exclusionary. I want to relate to people as a human race. And my response to that was that there's no definition as to what that implies. The fact that you're a human and I am a human does not automatically imply anything. It might imply to one person that we're, we, we should be brothers. It might imply to someone else that we should be enemies and we should be rivals. And there's no final authority to be able to tell me that I'm right or that you're right. Right. So we've completely uh, lost the plot if that's what we're going to do. Um, so Essen does an interesting thing. He traces kind of one of the liberal responses to this kind of charge is like, well, we look at nature and we see inequality, we see violence, we yeah. see all these sorts of things. These things aren't natural at all. Natural, what are you talking about natural rights? There are no natural rights or natural freedom. So yeah. um, one liberal response is that, okay, it's not descriptive, it's aspirational, right? Like, so that um, it's not that those rights exist now, but that's where we're going. That's actually the, the project is to make these sorts of things a reality, the the equality and the, the sacred property and sacred autonomy and things like this. And this is significant because this creates an imperative for violence. 
But also, sorry, it just it just struck me. We're back to Plato and the noble lie again. Because uh-huh. liberals will know that the state of nature out of which we're merely uh, Darwinian products is violent, uh-huh. unequal, uh, power hungry, merciless, no humanity, no fairness. Yes. So well, we're going to aspirationally create a fair society where there's equality. Yes. This is a noble lie because it doesn't actually have its roots in any natural reality. Yes. Uh, transcendent reality so this is a fiction that we're going to believe in and teach and hope no one notices that it's not actually based <laughs> on anything and hopefully no one will go the emperor has no clothes to use that old <laughs> mythical story look he's actually naked walking around you know you know the story the the, the of course know. um and it, that's what it sounds like you know, just a moment's reflection you think this isn't real. Uh, and the only yeah. thing that is real, of course, is, a re- uh, is religion, or particularly Islam, which is rooted in transcendent objective values of mm-hmm. God himself. And without that, th- there is literally nothing left that you, you, are, you are in a void, a nihilistic emptiness. Mm. Yes, very much so. And so what that move does is it creates a redemption myth, like not just any type of myth, a redemption myth for liberalism, right? The world is out there and it's nasty and brutish and short. That's what life is. And only liberalism is going to civilize it and bring us the rights that are our maybe our aspirational just, rights. Just don't ask what the roots are. Right? Just don't, don't look under the bonnet and asking, sorry, what's the basis for this? Just, just accept the, the mood music and the aspiration and hope no one asks any difficult questions. Yes, very much so. And so this necessitates violence. And actually some liberal yes. philosophers and the theorists, they, they described it as so, for example, it's like making a garden in the jungle. Right. You have the, the weeds that are constantly threatening to invade. And so this is perfect. It plays right into Esed's hand. Everything that he's saying is like, like, look, like this is exactly it. Like secularism or the secular is not a less violent space. It has similar. It has simply redefined the boundaries exactly. of where violence is occurring. OK, it has created different imperatives for violence. It has uh, the sacred is guaranteed by other things than things previously, you know, that required violence. So if before, if we're thinking about um, a Christendom, right, which was guaranteed the the, 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 the cohesiveness or the, the well-being of Christendom was guaranteed by certain things. And so it required violence over here and it was threatened by other things and required violence over here, the infidel or whatever. We've just shifted the borders. We, that's all we've done is that the secular is something that is um, it has certain things that threaten it that need to be responded to with violence and it needs to be guaranteed by a certain sort of violence as well and, and the, um, the, the primary example for myself is controversial is the, the the liberal secular advocacy of absolute free abortion on demand up to birth uh, the case uh, in the united states the democratic leader known as president biden has supported uh, abortion up to birth and this is a uh, systematic, massive industrial violence against the unborn on a scale unimaginable in human history. And this is done in the name of liberal civilizing rights, the, a woman's right, bodily autonomy to do whatever she wants to do with her baby. Extraordinary violence, uh, a massive violence that's done, uh, and, and in Europe and in France and so on. I noticed that the European Parliament recently uh, very, very unusually passed a resolution uh, when the Roe versus Wade um, thing was struck down recently in your Supreme Court, condemning uh, the uh, US Supreme Court for its decision and upholding the, the right of a woman's bodily autonomy. This was like whole of Europe speaking out, condemning the United States. Well, what about interference? But they, they were speaking up for this mass violence of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of the state through the healthcare system. 
uh, to kill unborn children. And this is all seen as very civilized. And that's a perfect segue to the next segment. We have one just final point about uh, this particular segment, because the abortion issue exactly has to do with things that have to do with pain and autonomy and choice. Um, And so we see in the abortion issue and the fact that the European Union would get together and make such a ridiculous non-binding, basically slap on the wrist or, or statement against the United States shows how central and important and essential uh, moral auto- or individual autonomy is to the whole liberal and secular project. Um, but before we go there, just to bring Essed's final point about this home, what type of redemption myth is this? Is this the same type of myth that exists in religion? Is it really just a continuity of religion? And Essed says no, because if you look at the redemption myth that exists in Christian theology, right? And we don't agree with this as Muslims, but it's there. Like So the, the idea is that uh, Christ died on the cross, and he was uh, a sacrificial lamb, atoned for everybody's sins, which is, you know, um, completely against our beliefs, and we don't uh, agree with that at all. But within their belief, okay, within their understanding of things, the redemption happens through a suffering redeemer, mm-hmm. right? Christ allegedly, falsely, is the one who suffers to redeem others, whereas the liberal redemption myth, it's not the redeemer who suffers, it's the ones who need to be redeemed who suffer, mm. right? It's then, and that's another transition that we're getting into as to violence and pain and which violence is considered gratuitous and excess violence that we can't tolerate on what is the necessary violence that the secular order deems has to occur in order for these sorts of things to happen, right? So the point being that Essed is saying that it's not just a clean one-to-one continuity from the religious to the secular. This is different. We had a switch. Notice the switch that happened. The redemptive uh, myth used to be something where the redeemer suffers. Now it's something where the redeemer gets to sit on the couch and press the button and bomb and drone people from far away um, and gets to um, the people who need redemption are the ones that get to suffer the punishment and the pain of their own redemption. Wow. Yes. So let's go, I guess we'll transition. There's more to say about that other section, but I think it will just uh, be repeating ourselves. Um, So the second shadow uh, that he pursues is agency and pain. Okay. Um, And so why agency, he says, because the secular, the concept or category of the secular depends upon certain conceptions of action and passion or activity and passivity. Why pain? Why do we care about pain? Um, Because pain is associated with religious subjectivity. It's also regarded as the opposite of reason if we're regarding pain as passion, right? Um, He uses as paradigmatic sort of the, again, alleged suffering of Christ, right? Which is sort of like, we they call it literally the passion of the Christ, right? It's this sort of suffering that's undergone. Um, So it's tied to religious subjectivity. It's considered completely opposite and inimical to reason. And also because the idea of secular agency seeks to eliminate it, and that is pain and suffering, right? Um, because why? Because pain is the limit of agency, right? If somebody puts their hand on a stove, okay, your agency is to put your hand on the stove, but the stove is hot, okay? Your pain is the limit of your agency. And so if we are now going to exist in an order, a secular order, that one of the most important things of the secular order is agency and individual agency, pain becomes the limit of that agency, pain becomes something bad. 
pain becomes something that must be overcome, an obstacle, um, as opposed as a very, very different understanding of pain than, say, the Christian idea that uh, the pain is a passion, right, to be, to be suffered. And, and we'll get to some more uh, specific examples of that. Um, pain, so pain is not just the, in the modern uh, post-enlightenment sort of secular understanding, the limit to individual secular agency, but also the obstacle to collective progress, okay? And so we, we light or we alight on two of the main imperatives of the, the secular individual, which are empowerment, okay? One of the main imperatives of the secular self is empowerment at the individual level and history making or making history, the ability to choose, the ability to have that agency to go out and to um, change the world, right? Everybody tells all the college seniors, you know, go out and change the world, you know, very, very new sort of way of relating to history and the self and agency and, and what you're, you're considered able to do in the first place. Um, so we get into it. So, yes, let's see, let's see. There's a lot there. So it cr creates imperatives, as we say, of self-ownership versus external control. So the pain is something that is glossed or understood as an external control. Um, and as opposed to also the increasing of self-empowerment versus decreasing pain. So whether it's external or internal, the external pain would be coercion, right? And the internal pain would be that sort of suffering. And those are the two things that really need to be eliminated. And this is within even the secularism's own understanding of itself. Like if you're going to say, okay, what's the imagination we have of pre-modern life, the medieval times, right? Everybody is just falling over and dying left and right. And they have miserable lives and they, you live until you're 35 at best. And right. It's this sort of, that's the kind of the theology of progress at work to, to imagine that we, that, that was life before now we've eliminated pain. Ah, modern medicine has come and saved us from, aren't you glad for modern medicine? You're talking against modernity. How dare you? I, yeah. I, I sometimes ask this tongue in cheek question and uh, it, it often stumps people. It won't, won't stump you, of course, but I, I ask, what's the mortality rate for human beings? And people look at me and think, hmm, is it 50 percent, 60 percent, the mortality rate for human beings? No, actually, it's 100 percent, obviously, because everyone dies. But the, the point of the question is that all medieval people have died and all people today will die. And that's yes. pretty certain. I mean, and that's it. So we, we haven't escaped anything. We, you know, we're, we're going we're, we're to grow old and die of what, you know, we're all going to die of something. Um, it's just, and our bodies age naturally. Mm -hmm. It's part of what it is to be human. It's part of our species. So it's a, a great illusion to think that sickness and death are somehow on the way out. I, I, of course, do we even say that in today's world with um, COVID and with all the things that are going on, things are getting worse rather than better. Yes, very much so. And yeah, there, there's a couple uh, assumptions that go on there. First of all, there's uh, an emphasis of quantity over quality, right? We measure life in terms of years, which is useless, absolutely useless yeah. um, compared to how that life was spent. Um, and yeah. then the other thing is that we assume, and we this is a very, you know, typically European or Euro-American move is we universalize just because medieval Europe, uh, people died from, you know, whatever diseases at 30 or 40. Um, if we go back to the time of the Prophet Muhammad, we find that some of the companions lived into their 90s and their hundreds and things like that. Um, and this is something that's well known in other cultures throughout the world. So it's not even a given that people in the pre-modern era were just dropping dead left and right. Um, and I'm very suspicious of that claim, um, though it would be sort of unwieldy to pursue in a quantitative way, kind of a, a final call on that. Well, but, I, I say, because my, my, my endless hobby horse here, that the uh, people say that infant mortality now has 
you know, drastically reduced kind of modern medicine and care for children. And one can argue that that's probably an absolute lie, because if you look at pre-born children, uh, you know, going yes. on about it again, I'm afraid, <laughs> yeah, but we have never had much more infant mortality now than entire human history. More unborn children are killed today in the United States and in Europe than ever before in the history of mankind. So it's right. actually precisely the opposite. More people mm. are dying, uh, unborn babies. I'm not talking about embryos or three-day-old three, three old zyka. I'm talking about, you know, recognizable babies in the womb, who, which can be exterminated mm. after birth in many cases, including yes. Which is a perfect example and illustration of Esad's point in the introduction that statistics and opinion polls and all these things are not merely descriptive. They are performative. Like they are meant to shape public opinion and reinforce certain ideologies and ideas, yeah. right? When people present that um, infant mortality rate, it's calculated according to a certain logic within a certain ideology. And the fact that they exclude aborted fetuses shows that it enables the picture to be you know, painted that we've made so much progress and look at us now we've, you know, oh, the past was so bad. And now we've arrived at, you know, this enlightened civilized uh, situation when if, you know, you, ex you put it under the uh, examination room under the ma magnifying glass, then you might see something of a little bit of a different story there. In uh, fact, uh, it's more damning. So it's yeah, more damning just because it, before it was not voluntary and now it's voluntary and chosen. So we've actually experienced a moral degradation regardless of the numbers. Sorry, you were saying? No, sorry. I, I just want another example I, I've thought of. I've not, I've not actually read this anywhere. It's just my own example. I'm sure a lot of other people have thought of it as well. You know, there are opinion polls asking how happy people are. So <laughs> the polls sort of say, yeah, how do you feel? Are, are you happy? And they'll come away with, say, you know, I, I don't know, random says, 60% of the population are happy. And this is progress, they'll say. Look at compared right. to 100 years ago. <laughs> now, the, the only problem with that is, of course, if you look at the suicide statistics uh, in Scandinavia and Europe, I mean, they have increased substantially over the years. Now, all these people who killed themselves weren't happy, by the way, and but they're not included in these statistics. So what sure. you've got are, are self-selecting people who have not killed themselves because they're really unhappy, saying that they're happy, but not actually yeah. all the human beings that have lived at any particular part time. And, mm -hmm. and, and made, so that, that statistic is very skewed. Uh, yeah. It excludes those who are so unhappy that they killed themselves. Because obviously they're not around to ask the question, but obviously they weren't happy because they killed themselves. I sure. mean, it's that kind of, it's just to illustrate your point about the statistics kind of being self-reinforcing uh, the assumptions mm -hmm. built into them. And the, the one that cracks me up all the time, there's some sort of uh, Islamic index where uh, they decide what country is most um, putting into practice Islam whatever that means to them. And it's usually some Western European country that, you know, ransacked some other country and so became rich through their colonial exploits, right? So again, like this is a, a comical kind of illustration of how, how loaded these things are. You want to present it like it's simple fact in front of people. And you're really just, it's showing more about you than it is about what you're claiming it's, it's showing about. It's showing that the person who formulated that uh, index or whatever is really uh, glossing what Islam is about, a simple material progress. Um, and so if that's what it is, then, okay, you've just explained to us a lot about yourself. You haven't really told us anything about Islam or about the state of the world. Uh, so yeah, so st statistics are not neutral. They're not neutral at all. They're, they're stand on the shoulders of I the ideology that, that it occurs to somebody to think what question, right? The questions yeah. are not neutral. Like what, what question occurs to you to ask, right? That's, that's a product of ideology and all these categories and shifting formations, like, like Esed is saying. So 
getting back to pain, right? So this is sort of how these things are, are shifting within the modern sphere. Pain is now regarded since it's the opposite of agency, since it's the limits of both individual and collective agency, it's now bad. And so if you are experiencing pain, you are a victim, okay? You're not an agent of that pain. It's not something that you can do. Uh, it's something that you merely experience that's an imposition, a coercion uh, upon you. Um, and there's a, a couple people that try to find us some sort of third space and say, well, okay, um, uh, but we resist, right? And this always comes upon with the, you know, if we talk about uh, the colonization, right, of, of Latin American, African, Asian, things like that, you know, uh, and that was kind of my first realm of study where you want to talk about the bombs and the, the pain and all the subjugation. And then there's always going to be somebody who pulls out that trump card and says, well, wait a second, they're not just victims. Right, because we can't just call them victims because then they're just um, they're not agents, and we can't take away their agency. And so now we have to read everything that they do as resistance. Right, that's kind of the move that these people make. Everything's resistance because the only agency that they can imagine, due to their understanding of pain, is that the only possible way to have agency in that situation is to resist pain. Mm -hmm. The pain itself cannot be agency which is part of their enlightenment kind of categories or post-enlightenment categories. So that's what Essence pushing back against. He says, no, 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 if we go to pre-modern uh, societies, pain itself can be agency. This is not something that's, uh, that's uh, just you know, uh, a foregone conclusion. And he brings up three um, sort of situations that demonstrate, or illustrations that demonstrate this. The first that he brings up is the phenomenon of the martyr, right? The martyr. The person, the, the shaheed, right? The person who goes out knowing that they're going to be slaughtered, uh, one against a hundred, right? With his sword brandished and charges into the enemy, and he's mowed down and he, you know, dies with you know, hundreds of wounds on his body and he's dismembered and all these sorts of things, right? Um, can we say that this person, their only agency was in resisting their pain? Can we say that their their only that their agency was uh, overcome or had to overcome a certain pain, or was the pain itself? the source of the agency and the arena of the agency. Um, so that's a very, very pre-modern, pre-enlightenment sort of way of looking at it. The second thing that he brings up is childbirth, right? Um, because childbirth is a very painful experience unless you're all medicated, but even then it, it's painful. Um, and so he says, okay, what's going on with, with childbirth and pain? Okay, there is an agency that's involved there and things are produced out of that pain. Okay, first of all, you have a vital relationship that is produced, which is the actual child. But then all of those that, that need to be present in order to assist in the birth itself, these are relationships that are being generated and formed through this pain, not in opposition or resistance to this pain. This pain is not um, the depriving of someone of agency. Um, it is actually the agency itself. And uh, Esad actually uh, takes to task the famous feminist Simone de Beauvoir, who um, was very much against uh, child, and this is, has ramifications for the feminist movement, who was very, very much against childbirth and nursing. Uh, through this logic, she had basically doubled down on the Enlightenment opposition and said that this is passive. It's something that happens to us. Therefore, it's limiting our agency. And therefore, it is bad. It is limiting our individual autonomy. And so if you're uh, giving birth and having babies and nursing them, then you're a fool. You're holding yourself back from the enlightened freedom that you could be enjoying if you were just this you know, miserable individual by yourself without any social relations or children. Yeah, she was the partner of Jean-Paul Sartre, the French uh, Marxist philosopher slash dramatist 
slash whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's two out of three. So we talk, so the martyr, the childbirth, and then finally virtue ethics. So virtue ethics is this idea of uh, a different way of, of understanding pain. It's like, okay, and this is much more closer to home for, for Muslims um, because that's when we get into talking about like the story of Ayub, right? Ayub is kind of paradigmatic, uh, Job, as uh, somebody whose pain is their virtue or the, the domain of cultivating virtue. Right, that they have sabr, they have patience, they have uh, even rida, they have uh, contentment with Allah's decree, and so their pain actually becomes the source of their virtue in this life and the next. All of this wouldn't be possible if we were to just take for granted the enlightenment or post-enlightenment sort of secular understanding of what pain is as the limits of our agency. Um, so he hits upon those three things, um, and then uh, he does a really interesting thing towards the end of this particular section where he talks about. Again, to show how far the categories have shifted, he talks about Oedipus, uh, and he talks about the idea of a scapegoat. And he talks about different readings of Oedipus. He says, for example, because you know the, the, the general outline of the story of Oedipus is that he's committed some horrible crime that he isn't aware that he did. And so there's kind of this philosophical question, did he really do it? Can we say that it was him that did that or not? That's kind of the open question. And so he talks about like Freud's understanding of or reading of what's going on here about like this is like magic and and taboo right it's like all this sort of thing that's going on underneath the surface and then he talks about he cites some other scholars who read the story as uh, an expression of responsibility and justice right because oedipus gives up all of his power and things like that right towards the end of the story uh in response to no coming to find out what maybe he or what we say what was done right by his hand um and Esed takes, uh, uh, takes exception with these two readings, especially the last one. He says that to, to read Oedipus's actions as responsibility and blame is a purely modern secular reading, right? Because, um, you know, um, as opposed to, um, because it, he wasn't really responsible. It wasn't really, and that's the whole, whole point of the Oedipus story is that it wasn't really him that did it. And yet we have some he feels compelled to act. So what, if it's not blame, if it's not responsibility, then what is driving him to act? As I said, this is something that's a pre-modern understanding of pain. Uh, and this is experiencing pain as, uh, as virtue, right? And experiencing this sort of thing uh, as the, um, his suffering is born out of virtue. He says that this is the genre of tragedy, right? Which is kind of very opposed to our modern sort of sensibilities that where the future is not out there to be made, which is the modern secular understanding, right? The agentic self, the autonomous self that's out there doing rather the future is out there to be encountered and to be suffered in a virtuous way. Um, and the last thing he does is in this particular subsection is he talks about the idea of a scapegoat. What do we mean these days when we say scapegoat, we said, Oh, um, I'm blaming everything on Paul. It's all his fault. Right. Again, the, assumption or the uh, allocation of blame. That's not what a scapegoat was originally. Originally, it was something where it was this sort of, uh, maybe you could read it as a taboo, but it was this idea where you put all of the village's curses and bad whatever uh, results that uh, onto this sort of external thing, and then you get rid of it somehow in some sort of fantastic way. But it was originally in the book of Leviticus in, in, the, uh, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, uh, it was an Israelite festival, Yom Kippur, uh, happened once uh, a year, 
And part of that, you can read about it in the book. I forget if it's chapter 15 or 16 or something. But and, mm-hmm. and at one point, the high priest in, in of, the, of, of the Israelites placed his hands on the, the poor goat. Um, and all the sins of Israel were placed on this animal. And the animal was not sacrificed. This is something that mm-hmm. in Christianity, for some reason, I've never quite grasped never acknowledged the 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 animal is not actually killed or sacrificed Mm. it's shooed off into the desert Uh, Mm. off you go scamper off into the desert and whatever happens to you there so and off it goes with israel's sin so that is the scapegoat Um, so it's in our in our place it it embodies our sin literally in the case of israel since and and is taken away from our midst Uh, it wasn't metaphorical it, it was an actual uh, kind of a, a, an atoning uh, mm-hmm. an atonement without any uh, with God, but without any sacrifice. Um, so that, that's that's the, the, the literal origin of the story. But obviously, because it's gone through various retellings and recastings over the millennia. Right. So yeah. So Essen's trying to point out what's the discrepancy between those two readings: the pre-modern reading as something where it's not the elimination of evil, but rather the transcendence of it. Right. Right. It, it's we're not blaming the goat. Okay, um, you know, the, the goat's not responsible for the sins of, of, of the tribe of Israel. But the modern rendering of that term is now one of blame and responsibility. So it assumes this subject which has agency, pain is the limit of that agency. And so now we're going to, if there's going to be any pain, we're going to assume some sort of blame. The last point when it comes to, uh, when it comes point to, to pain, and I know we're getting a little long on time, is that um, these two renderings of, of pain and of agency result in different teleologies. So what's the what's the end game here? Um, he says that if pain is to be eliminated, to be controlled and to be overcome, then what this creates is it creates a historical teleology of secularism. The job of secularism now is to come in and to eliminate pain, supposedly, or a specific type of pain, right, at best. Whereas within the virtue ethics, if we understand as pain as not something to be avoided, but something to be virtuously suffered or something to be virtuously endured, then this is something that has a biographical teleology that's preparing you for the day of judgment, that's preparing you for uh, ultimate reckoning and the afterlife. So two very sort of different, again, Essed's whole point is that different imperatives are shaped by the way we think about things. If we think about pain as something that is going is external to us, is limiting ourselves and our agency and our ability to choose, then that creates one set of imperatives and one set of threats. And if we understand pain as this other thing, as this thing that actually can be the source of virtue of actually the location of agency itself, it produces an entire different set of imperatives and an entire different set of threats. Um, the final thing, the final shadow that he that he pursues is one of cruelty and torture. And this one is a little bit more brief than the previous two and a little bit more um, real to us as Muslims living in a post 9-11 world. Um, so uh, the, the, the going idea or the triumphalist story of the secular and secularism is that uh, the secular came to eliminate cruelty and particularly uh, religious violence right? Uh, Religious intolerance and these sorts of things. That's why we have the UN Charter of Human Rights and we have the Hague Conventions. We have all these sorts of uh, instantiated into law uh, limitations as to what should happen. And so the story goes that, you know, before secularism or the secular, people were just, you know, inhumanely just, you know, obliterating each other in all these sorts of ways. And the secular came in and stepped in and now everybody uh, at least gets to play by the rules, which if you're a Muslim, you better know already what a crock that is. But 
for, for other people who aren't Muslim, we'll give them a pass until they listen and are educated. Um, Assad has four main um, assertions when it comes to this sort of thing. First, he says that the modern history of torture um, is not about the reduction of cruelty. Rather, it is a story of becoming truly human and identifying who and who is not truly human and therefore who is eligible for violence and who isn't. Mm. Okay. Um, that's point number one. Point number two is that torture, etc., cruelty is intended as a universal category to incorporate all of these sorts of different practices, but it in fact operates in a very historically and culturally determined way. Mm. Um, the third point is that new definitions of suffering and of a person who is a sufferer are more universal in scope. However, they are very, very particular in context. And he represents it. So to illustrate his point, this is a minor point, but to illustrate it real quick, um, the extension of cruelty and suffering to psychological suffering, right? Something that wasn't necessarily um, accounted for in a pre-modern sort of understanding of what suffering or pain was or what cruelty or what torture was. Now we have expanded the category to include um, psychological cruelty, which is, is real. It's fine. But but we find very, very particular exceptions to even the more immediate and um, obvious types of cruelty and torture, such as he, reference, he uh, references sadomasochism, right? BDSM and these sorts of things. Uh, this is something that is um, engaged in willingly. Uh, and it is literal physical torture, <laughs> right? Literal physical cruelty. And yet it is exempted somehow from our supposedly universal definitions of what torture are. Um, whereas now, the, you know, so it's expanded in one way, the category is expanded to include non-physical torture, but then it's also been narrowed in some of its content in that it makes some exemptions when it is deemed necessary by kind of the secular self. And we'll get, so that brings us to his fourth point, which is that when does it give way? When do these supposedly universal categories give way and make exceptions? It's when they are prioritizing between other sort of uh, imperatives of the secular self, such as individual autonomy, right? So the, the people who are having their kinks in the bedroom, right? This is something that's considered an exception from the law of torture because they are consenting adults, whatever that means. If that's one thing or it's not really, it's actually very, very complicated, the idea of consent. But anyway, put that to the side for a second. The fact that there are subjects who supposedly consent to this sort of action, if they did not consent, everybody agrees that would be torture and cruelty. And yet, simply by the virtue of the fact that they chose it without any sort of complication as to the processes by which their opinions have been formed or their sensibilities have been formed, whatever, they've chosen it. And so, therefore, it gets exempted from this category because it impinges upon something that's more important, which is the, the ability to choose. However, as said points out, and this is a very, very brilliant point uh, in my estimation, not every subject is allotted the same ability to choose. Okay, so if we're in the domain of power, we're in the domain of the West, okay, people in their bedrooms, they're allowed to choose this sort of cruelty and torture that they consent to, and it will exempt them from liberal violence that's going to stop them from doing that. However, people in the Middle East or people in the Muslim world or in other parts of the world who are the religious fanatics, right? Who uh, sign themselves up for other types of pain, right? Whether it's the martyr, 
right? Or the person who's going to, um, you know, uh, even again, we don't agree with these practices, but take, for example, what the Shia do or what some of the Shia do for Ashura, right? Uh, bloody mess, whipping themselves, and all this other stuff. They're not considered to be the same as the subject in the bedroom with their kinks who are by their their moral, excuse me, their secular subjectivity are opting themselves out of this kind of torture law. No, those people, the fanatics abroad, are actually by their consenting choice, quote unquote, of taking on that violence, are making themselves eligible towards the liberatory violence, quote unquote, of the secular state, which now has to come in and say, oh, these people are all uh, deluded and they're fanatics and we're going to come bring them civilization uh, through bombs and, and other things like that. So that's all That's all well and good. Um, to circle back to the first point, and we're getting to the end here. Um, thanks for everybody's patience. It's, it's, it's a bit long, the first third. Um, cruelty, imagining cruelty. The secularist account is that secularism came in and ended cruelty, or at least we're on a progressive track to minimizing it. Okay. And this obviously is borrowing evolutionary schemes right, of history. It's obviously falls within the theology of progress to imagine that we're just uh, consistently marching forward to, you know, less and less cruelty. I mean, we see that in Western philosophy, people like uh, uh, Hegel, for example, the great German uh, ideas philosopher of the 19th century. Um, this is, is a part of the, the, the Western kind of intellectual tradition uh, in recent centuries, this idea of prog uh, progressive improvement and moving towards the, the pearly gates to, to, to a, a utopian conclusion. Right. And anything that you point out that uh, is merely considered an exception and a blip in the road and and just the the um, the the not yet total um, victory of that progress. Right. So it's literally impossible to argue with someone to say, well, you know, that's just, you know, there's going to be some bumps along the way. Um, whereas another rendering would be like, no, like this is actually something that doesn't do the work that you're describing. But anyway, we'll get there. So there's an assumption here that's being made. There's an assumption here, and it's an important one for our purposes, that what is the means or the mechanism by which to reduce or eliminate cruelty is the extension of rights. Mm. Okay, that's, that's the, the real big one when it comes to uh, the modern secular self and the political order that it ushered in, is that the extension of rights is going to eliminate cruelty eventually. Um, Essex says, not so fast. Torture and cruelty are integral to the state just as much, if not more so now, than it was previously. And he goes to, to, um, to cite Foucault. Foucault, you know, Foucault differentiated between two different types of power, and he defined the modern era by this sort of um, rise of a, a different type of power, which he called disciplinary power. So the pre-modern sort of power was what he called sovereign power. We think about, you know, uh, public executions and floggings in the public square and these sort of very public demonstrations of, of cruelty. Um, so just because we've done away with that, does that mean that we're less cruel? Uh, you know, Foucault would say no, and so would Essed, and so would everybody in their wake. They say what we have in the modern sphere is disciplinary power. And disciplinary power is different from sovereign power because it relies upon being secret in order to be effective. So this is the Guantanamo Bay. This is the Abu Ghraib. This is the Bagram. You know, this is all the black sites and the, the all the extensive uh, torture no, but I'm, no. Just say, I'm just saying ordinary prisons. I mean, uh, the prison system in America is notorious. Yeah. Not I've ever seen inside a prison cell in America, but you know what, what one understands that is the case. You know, to be to be locked in a, a cell 
for decades, for entire yes. life, could be decades hence, is certainly a form of torture. Uh, you know, it doesn't, and, and yet it's not seen as torture because you're not actually actively inflicting pain through flogging or anything else. But that, that seems to be a particularly cruel form of torture to be mm. cut off from humanity, from nature, uh, in, in, a, in a box for decades is is a hideous form of torture and it's not something in islam i don't think would ever be countenance where you i mean look there's a different subject about how the efficacy of, it, of quick and sharp punishments and painful yes. punishments as opposed to uh the very prolonged torture that happens in in many western prisons that can last years and years and years uh when you're locked in a box I mean, you know, which is worse, uh, but it's not a debate we have, unfortunately, in the West. Right. We're not allowed to because of rights. But you know, what, what are these rights? Asset actually identifies two principal reasons, and this is part of the formations of, of the secular that account for how normal and pervasive prison sentences have become as opposed to other forms of punishment. So one of them is the assumption that freedom is natural, okay, the, the liberal assumption that freedom is natural. And so the deprivation of freedom is something that is fundamental and universal as punishment, as opposed to the infliction of pain, uh, we imagine some sort of crazy sadomasochist that might actually get off on it, right? So there, so that's something that's not um, egalitarian in that way. The other way in which prison is more egalitarian and therefore more conducive to the secular liberal state is that um, uh, people bear pain differently, right? So uh, someone who was more sturdy was assumed to be able to bear lashes better than someone who was more frail. Or just like with penalties and fines, like somebody who was rich, a fine didn't really do anything to them. Someone who's poor, a fine might, you know, put them back decades, right? So there was an assumption being made, and again, not contested, but we should contest it now, that prison was something that was more egalitarian. Mm -hmm. uh, however, that kind of brings us back to, okay, well, uh, what understanding of the human subjects or what assumptions about the human subject are we making um, to imagine that that would be somehow more humane or less cruel, uh, as you're saying. Um, and it's very revealing. It's very revealing. And that's exactly what Essa is trying to get at. Um, so to go back to disciplinary power and the torture and the, the, the vast torture that the United States and its allies commits um, upon its, its enemies, um, what we see is, okay, nobody is technically allowed to admit it, right? It occurs in secrecy. All this denial, right? You have Bush getting up in front of people saying the United States of America does not torture, right? And all these sorts of, you know, performative things when that's exactly what we do. The United States tortures and Britain tortures and uh, France uh, we know We know this is punished, this, this claim, because Julian Assange, that's his name, uh, the, the report, I think he's an Australian. Anyway, he's on his way, unfortunately, to uh, very likely to be extradited from mm. uh, prison to the United States. I mean, he's not American at all, of course. Hasn't, hasn't broken any American laws. But nevertheless, there's an extradition treaty between the US and the UK, so he, he's ending up there. But the point is, his, his actual crime is to publicly expose war crimes by the United States military yes. in the Middle yes. East. And this is his great sin, his great crime. But mm. No one really says that, the, you know, oh, oh, he's just some kind of bad apple in America. You know, he's broken some laws. But no, that's what he's that's what's really pissed off. Use my French pissed off America is um, is that he's embarrassed them and told the public uh, what America had done in in literally committing war crimes and killing uh, civilians in Iraq and elsewhere, which was actually filmed. I mean, this is not an yeah. allegation. These are facts. 
but mm -hmm. uh, they are secrets, uh, as, you, as you're saying. They're secrets and not to be exposed. And he's broken state secrets. But all he's yeah. done is been a good journalist and told the world where abuse of power is happened by the dominant country in the world. That's mm -hmm. his crime. And, and he is a martyr, in a way. He's a, a witness to the truth, uh, as literally what a word martyr means. It means a witness. Yes, and the fact that the fact that such a um, a spectacle is being made out of this entire situation, it shows us two main things. First of all, it shows us how important it is for states to deny that this goes on in order for it to be effective. And this is part of the whole secrecy thing and how secrecy uh, is directly related to its efficacy. What are the state secrets or what are the state interests that need to be protected by torture? Nobody knows. Nobody's allowed to say. Because if you were to say, then you could actually um, subject them to critique and to analysis and to, you know, uh, thought, but you're not allowed to say it. It has to be a secret. That's how it maintains its power. And this is the type of violence that is considered um, good. This is the necessary violence because state secrets is the, you know, state interests, state imperatives. That's the, the most sacred thing uh, going when it comes to our secular order. Yeah. The second thing it shows is it shows our modern sensibility of um, shying away from pain. The fact that we don't want to see it out in the public. We would be scandalized by public displays of you know, flogging and these sorts of things. However, we're much less scandalized to know that uh, advanced interrogation techniques are occurring uh, you know, uh, all across the world on behalf of our name. Right. So it demonstrates once again that pain is seen as something negative, that pain is seen as a scandal uh, to be hidden from the public eye and denied if possible. Um, and this is sadly something that we see that bleeds over into the mental health sphere. Um, this is something that Muslims need to take very seriously as now more and more Muslims are getting involved in mental health. And there's been a good, you know, this is a generally good development and that there needs to be more recognition of, of mental health uh, in the Muslim community. Not everything is jinns and possession right, as some would have us believe. But but we also need to be careful to not imbibe uncritically the associations and the categories that come along with uh, current thinking about mental health and psychology and, and, and pain, right? And so one of those things is to automatically regard any sort of pain as, again, limiting individual autonomy, free choice, and therefore something that's negative that has to be removed at all costs. Not saying that all pain needs to be, you know, not saying that we're going to just, you know, keep on ramping up the pain for everybody and that's good. But we need to be able to differentiate because in our tradition, in the Islamic tradition, some pain is actually um, edifying. There is edifying pain. There is such a thing as that. So we should be uh, intentional as to what we're taking on from the current regime of categories and thought uh, and not just be slavish and accept everything, uh, you know, swallow it whole. So um, that also shows us that people are more willing to tolerate pain as an instrument than pain as a punishment, which gets us back to the prison versus the, 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 the flogging. We're, we'll give pain a pass if pain is going to be used as an instrument to protect state, state secrets or national security or these sorts of you know um, nonsense categories that don't mean anything, that mean whatever, they're empty signifiers that can mean whatever the state wants them to mean. Um, but however, pain is punishment, that's something which we're much, much more um, sensitive to. But these things really come to bear when we look abroad at the colony, right? Um, we see that there has not been a reduction in pain or cruelty or torture. Um, that the borders of who is eligible to be tortured or who is eligible to receive cruelty have merely shifted, right? According to the state's assessments of 
what is a state secret, what is a state interest, what is a national security interest. Lord Cromer is quoted to have said civilization must unfortunately have its victims um, and the state gets to decide. Right. So um, a couple just emblematic examples. So uh, the state gets to decide between what is necessary pain and what is excess or gratuitous pain. And anything that is excess or gratuitous pain becomes the potential site for intervention and quote unquote liberation. Uh, Essed identifies two practices that the British encountered in um, in the Indian subcontinent. One of was hook swinging. Right. So this is something where people would insert hooks into their backs and would swing upon them. Um, and then the other practice was sati, which is the the, the widow, um, you know, immolating herself or being set on fire and dying along with her. And we're not talking about Islamic rulings about these sorts of things, but we're using them to, um, obviously this is against our tradition and our beliefs, but we're using to to shine a light on uh, the interaction between the UK and all of that it represents with the episteme and the modern subjectivity. Um, how did it make sense of these sorts of things? Those two types of pain and suffering and cruelty were seen as gratuitous and unnecessary. And it, wasn't, it wasn't even a factor whether they were consenting or not, mm -hmm. which again brings us back to sub who is seen as fully human. Okay, the Westerner who's able to have their kinks in the bedroom is seen as fully human and able to opt out of cruelty and torture law. The person who's the Muslim or the Hindu or the person who's abroad is not considered fully human and therefore their consent does not count. It's it's immaterial. And so actually, um, there's some quotes that Assad uh, cites that th these kind of colonial officers uh, arguing against. Um, hook swinging and these sorts of things because that they were inhumane and specifically saying, regardless of the ecstasy that the people feel when they engage in this practice, right? It is objectively inhuman and therefore it needs to be outlawed and banned and whoever wants to do it, they're going to be punished in some sort of way. The interesting thing, and this is a side note and a setup for our, our future session, inshallah, is that with Sati, the, the line of argument was different. The British actually were arguing against Sati within uh, the Indian subcontinent that it wasn't authentically a Hindu practice. <laughs> so they were engaging in the Orientalist practice yeah. of producing their own form of Hinduism and telling people that the Hinduism that you're following is wrong. You should be following our Hinduism because we, follow, we find this practice uh, problematic. That's the unnecessary, that's the gratuitous, the excess violence that needs to be eliminated by the, by the secular. What's the necessary violence? Well, there's a whole bunch of it that exists. It's ubiquitous in our societies. We see sports, right? And you have less of a problem with this than we do, but we see MMA, we see people, uh, American football, right? Uh, people are, this is, everybody has made the comparison between the football stadium, the American football stadium and the Roman uh, gladiator or the Roman Colosseum. Right. You know, you have people who have, you know, CTE who lose their minds when by the time they're 40 or 50, they can't, they, they, they forget where they're going on the way to the grocery store. Um, and we cheer them on, we buy the tickets and we buy the, you know, the memorabilia and we encourage this practice because that violence is seen as a necessary violence or at least a forgivable violence. Um, people complain that football, American football has gotten less violent. They say, they say that the NFL stands for the no fun league and that you know, they, they put all these sort of uh, restrictions where, really the, the bone crunching tackles of yesteryear were the real game. And now a bunch of wussies and pansies, right? So this is seen as a necessary violence to our culture. Uh, science, anything for science is considered ne uh, necessary violence, testing on lab rats, testing on animals, only a small, small uh, 
minority of people object to this. Most people view it as something that is just a necessary quote unquote evil that they're willing to tolerate, that uh, animals would be subject to pain, uh, deliberately subjected to, to pain in order to somehow see if some toxic substance is really going to kill us or, or not. Um, this is without batting an eye, this is seen as necessary. Factory farming, another necessary violence in order to give us uh, the, the price point we want on our chicken or on our beef, right? Um, stacking animals up, you know, kept alive through antibiotics and, uh, and, and growth hormones and things like this. Um, the all stacked on top of each other in, in their own feces and urine, right? This is not a life. This is something completely against Islamic ethics and Islamic uh, Sharia. But this is something that's considered a necessary violence in, in Western, uh, in the secular realm, because uh, it enables us to have a certain sort of livelihood. And then finally, and this will close with this, is warfare. Uh, and that's the big one. Um, and so Esed talks about how pre-modern warfare, well, the, the, the amount of violence that you could inflict was governed by muscle power, right? If I have a mace or I have an axe, the amount of physical violence that I could commit was limited by this muscle power, right? Um, if not muscle power, then there were moral inhibitions to doing certain things. Um, when we got to the point where we have now aircraft and we have artillery and we have um, not just killing to kill people, but killing things, buildings, now we have collateral damage, all the sort of Hague conventions and everything went out the window. Now we have cluster bombs and carpet bombs and uh, depleted uranium bullets and all these sorts of things that were uh, not even imaginable. Um, and people will slavishly kind of comment that, well, um, if we had developed the technology earlier, then it would have occurred earlier. And that's just putting the cart before the horse. No, what made it possible to, uh, to invent this technology in the first place was the severance of knowledge from belief. Yeah. Okay, getting back to the original opposition that's, that, that is uh, endemic to, to modernity, to secular modernity. If we had rooted our knowledge in beliefs and in authentic revelation and in ethics, then this thing would not have been possible, exactly. right? But we have severed that tie and it has completely floated away to that. Now we've only um, zeroed in on maximizing damage and maximizing pain and not only carpet bombs, but now uh, nuclear weapons become possible. Napalm becomes possible and the use of these things. And nobody bats an eye and nobody bats an eye. It's all considered necessary violence to safeguard those secret state interests or the national security, which again is an empty signifier for the state doing whatever it wants. And people will make asinine um, comparisons as to, oh, well, you know, Pearl Harbor. Okay. Um, civilians, okay, innocent people living in their homes versus combats, you know, combat veterans of war who are actually there to fight, right? Incinerating land, animals, trees, making it poison, birth defects for generations compared with killing somebody and then being done with it. The completely different categories, dimensions of violence, completely incomparable, and nobody bats an eye because of this, the way that the formations of the secular have unfolded, we consider this necessary violence in order to protect national security, in order to protect the secular self. Um, and it is um, considered all par for the course. So this is in a nutshell, that's this third of the book, the secular. So Esad pursues this, the secular through these three shadows, talking about myth, talking about pain and agency, and then finally talking about cruelty and torture to show us where we've gotten, how far we've come to the point where we are now. 
Okay, that's cool. That's very good. Well, thank you very much uh, indeed, uh, Imam Tom, for that uh, extraordinary tour de force uh, in, in this amazing book, uh, Formations of the Secular Christianity, Islam and Modernity by Professor Talal Assad, which uh, I haven't fully read. I've only read the first couple of chapters yet, but I'm working my way through it eventually. So probably reading about six books at the same time. The progress can be rather slow on some of them. <laughs> Um, yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah, uh, just uh, I'm sure you know, but just to remind you, if you don't, uh, Tom has a fantastic YouTube channel entitled Utika Masjid, which I will link to in the description below. Please subscribe. You won't regret it. But um, we'll uh, conclude uh, there for now until uh, next time. Uh, God willing, um, Tom will come back and continue um, his journey into the world of secularism uh, and put it that way <laughs> until next time. Thank you very much. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.